Hey guys, just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to Sidebar Forever. If you like the show, please subscribe to us at sidebarforever.com as well as share episodes of the podcast on your social media. That way, new listeners can find us as well. Blackmail, kidnapping, elaborate heists, double crosses, and oh yeah, murder. All set against the scenic vistas of sunny Los Angeles. You see, doll, this is what L.A. crime movies are all about. From black and white classics like Double Indemnity and The Big Sleep, to modern day flicks like Chinatown, Reservoir Dogs, L.A. Confidential, and Heat. Movie fans have always been fascinated with the seedy criminal underbelly of the West Coast. What makes Los Angeles a great place to spin tales of tangled webs, tough guys, and femme fatales? Which filmmakers have captured the grittiness as well as the glamour of the City of Angels? And how have L.A. crime movies changed up the spot over the last 70 years? I'm Swain Hunt. My partner, Adrian Johnson, and I are here to figure out who the rat is as we discuss the subgenre known as L.A. crime movies. Hope you enjoy it, sweetheart. Let me ask you, man, what do you think makes for a good, maybe just a good crime movie in general, but then what makes an L.A. crime movie specifically different from New York crime movies, rural crime movies, uh, you know, crime movies involving gangsters, crime movies, you know, from a black perspective? What makes the L.A. crime movie different to you? Hmm. I'd say just off top, you know, with L.A. crime movies, it's the whole it's at once the the seduction of the city. Mm. I mean, L.A. is a very seductive town. People go there for the climate. People go there to become known, to become rich, to become famous, to find themselves. You, you see all the time these narratives of you got to go west, go west, young man, mm-hmm. you know, or whomever, you know, and you will find what you're looking for out there. You will find yourself. And so when it comes to like, you know, L.A. crime movies, it's the seductiveness of the town. You know what I'm saying? There is a underbelly underneath all the glitz and all the um, sexiness and all of this great great climate and everything there is a seamy underbelly that somehow just seems natural that's what it would be so you would have like this criminal underclass Mm -hmm. if you will you know just within the confines of this city you know and when it comes to the actual you know plots of you know la crime movies too you know a lot of them are about heist you know, and not necessarily just traditionally, oh, I'm going to rob a bank or I'm going to get this big take of money. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's trying to heist property. It's trying to heist land. It's trying to heist whatever. It's always something about gimme, gimme. Yeah. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so totally. Yeah. It's funny you say that uh, about uh, the seduction because I actually had that had been thinking about that as well. That, you know, like uh, New York City is teeming with people, people on foot, people on public transportation, bustling. Everybody's busy. Nobody has time to interact, you know, set against, you know, these large, you know, tall buildings and skyscrapers and these big structures and bridges. And so, you know, 
it almost seems impenetrable. I think that's one of the reasons why New York has the uh, the saying for New York is is if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, mm. because it seems near impossible to penetrate New York in that way. But like you said, L.A. there is the seduction of the weather and you know the mansions and the and the attractive people and uh opportunity and it's all within six feet of you you know it's all right there like you know i can see it i can touch it i can grab it yeah you know and then and i guess in a criminal sense i can take it and it's mine yeah you know so um i think you're, you're definitely right about that man um we're probably going to cover uh quite quite a uh uh a rich history as far as uh, la crime movies are concerned going back to the to the 40s for movies like uh, like you referenced, the Big Sleep and, and White Heat, yeah, um, Double Indemnity, mm. moving into the seventies for films like you know The Long Goodbye, uh, Chinatown, uh, which is an absolute favorite. Oh yeah, um, and, and with good reason. Yes, <laughs> and then you know, and um, and we'll, we'll probably touch on a few things, but we'll probably definitely talk a little bit about uh, Reservoir Dogs, of course, True Romance, and Pulp Fiction. And I was going to ask you, too, because there are some that come in later on that aren't great. They're definitely L.A. crime movies, but they're not on my favorite list. And I don't think they're on some of them are on yours, <laughs> although some are. But um, like Two Days in the Valley. Oh, well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Set It Off, which is one of my favorites. OK, yeah, uh, yeah. Jackie Brown, which is not one of my favorites, and I know that's one which of yours. Which is one of my favorites, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you take the wheel on that uh, if, you know, if we talk about it in any great detail. Uh, of course, L.A. Confidential, which I know we're in agreement on. Mm. And then um, uh, Collateral in 2004, which is not a great movie, but I think it is a great L.A. crime movie in the sense of how it feels and how it's shot. Yeah. And um and the sense of danger and peril, I think it has all of that, but it's not a great movie to me in terms of the story. And then later on you get into some real clunkers like your black dahlias. Oh. Your waist deeps with Tyrese <laughs> and Megan Good. Um Lakeview Terrace with Samuel Jackson and uh and Carrie Washington, which you know, we won't discuss those. And then I, d I will give it uh, uh, maybe a semi-honorable mention to uh, that movie Drive that I was telling you about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, uh, mm -hmm. with uh, uh, Case, Carrie, Casey Mulligan and uh, Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling, yeah. Yeah, and, and like Ron Perlman and, and Albert Brooks and Brian Cranston's in it. Uh, Oscar Isaac is in it. There's a bunch of cool people in the movie. Yeah. But it's another one that's really stylish. And, of course, we're probably going to talk about uh, uh, The Limey as well. Mm, um, mm. Which you finally just got around to uh, to seeing recently, but yeah, yeah. I was just thinking too, man. Like for me, like L.A. requires driving and moving from different neighborhoods and towns and suburbs. You know, Atlanta is like L.A. in that way, where anywhere mm. you want to go, it's going to take you about thirty minutes to an hour to get there. Yeah, mm -hmm. with the distance and with and with traffic, it's just going to take you time to get there. So you spend a lot of time in the car in L.A. movies. The weather is always portrayed as consistent, even down to you know, there's no rain. It don't it never rains in Southern California. In Southern California, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tony, Tony, Tony. Uh, uh, and other cities are more marked by the changes in weather, and just the weather in general. Like you know, like New York, you know, you're going to have your summer and your spring, but you're going to have your devastating winters. Same thing in Chicago. Yeah. In Philly, other places in up north, Boston. Um, 
Seattle and Detroit, you know, often portrayed in movies as being overcast. Rainy, yeah. Yes, yes, gray and, and, and gloomy. And uh, Miami is always, you know, hot and sexy and colorful, you know. Um, but I think another thing, too, that struck me is is that is L.A. or Los Angeles as a city, and again, not unlike Atlanta and New York, is full of transplants. Mm-hmm. People are coming there for something uh, from all over the place. So, you, you know, you're going to meet people from all over the world and all over the nation in Los Angeles. You know, they're drawn there, like you said, for the opportunity, you know, maybe to be in the entertainment business and then maybe for criminal dealings, you know. Yeah. Uh, some people probably go there for one thing and end up, you know, involved in criminal dealings like in, uh, in True Romance, you know. Um, those, those guys, but, um, let's, let's start, man, with, uh, with some of the older films from the forties, like Double Indemnity and The Big Sleep and White Heat. I rewatched The Big Sleep here recently. Mm -hmm. Um, so I got it. It's fresh on my mind and I love the look of black and white movies. Oh yeah. Yes. The fact that they were shooting for black and white, you know, it's intentional. They didn't just take the color out. You know, they're shooting with that in mind in terms of the photography. Um, definitely Humphrey Bogart at his best. And he and Bacall, if I'm not mistaken, in that movie, that wasn't their first film, I think, was To Have and To, to Have, have Not. That. Yeah. That, mm -hmm. was the, that was the first one. But when you as a younger guy, man, when you first saw The Big Sleep, did you love it? Did you like it? Did it hit you right? You know, I had liked, well, actually, I had loved, you know, black and white movies even as a young child. But... With the big sleep, I was not big into like noir, you know, as a younger as a younger viewer. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And that was one of those I had to circle back around to when I got a bit older, you know, when I could, you know, appreciate stories like that. You know what I'm saying? But again, just just the feel of it, man. Just the look of it and, mm -hmm. and that that snappy patter, that back and forth. Oh yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that just Da 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 da, but da da da, but da 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 da. Right, it's great, man. That machine gun patter, hell yeah. Yeah, yo, I I call it that rat a tat tat dialogue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely that, man. And and um, similarly in uh, Double Indemnity with Fred McMurray, who, believe it or not, before I ever saw the movie, I only knew him from Father Knows Best. There you go. Or what was it? My three sons. My three or? sons. My apologies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> My three sons. My three sons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, wow, Fred McMurray is like a real scumbag macking on this married woman. And, you know, he's like, yeah, I want to see that dame. I want to see her up close without that staircase between us. And, you know, that whole conversation they had about, you know, uh, what if I was a cop? Was it was that with the one where they were talking about what if I was a cop and then I would stop you and. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Anyway, it was just all like all the sexual innuendo. Exactly. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah, man. It, it was it was really great, but 
one of the things that I did notice between um, those three particular films, this is the 40s. So, you know, film budgets were not what they are now. All of them, they say they're in L.A., but they're all shot on a soundstage. For the most part, yeah. I mean, almost mm-hmm. almost exclusively. I mean, if you got a train situation like you have in, uh, weren't they robbing a train in uh, White Heat? In White Heat, yes. You got to go outside and you got to shoot a, shoot at it, you know, on a train, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but almost all the rest of it was shot on sound stages and controlled environments, you know, and things. Well, oh, the Los Angeles Public Library. Yeah, sure, okay. It's a it's a wall that says <laughs> the Los Angeles Public Library. <laughs> but um. But I do like that even with that, those movies do mention things. And, and there's kind of a throughway in terms of landmarks and, and things in dialogue to let you know it's Los Angeles. You know, when they reference things like, you know, the 101 or the 110 or the 405, mm-hmm. they reference, you know, uh, neighborhoods like the Valley or the Hollywood Hills or, or West Hollywood. Um, Laurel Canyon, Burbank, East L.A., Inglewood, you know, those are all cues to tell you where you are. Sometimes if you turn on a movie and you, you're watching it and you're not, you're not quite sure, you know, if you don't see a landmark or if you don't see something about the, um, the locale that indicates where it is, those are things that, that'll tell you that. But later on, you start to see them shooting more on location, on street corners, at landmarks, mm-hmm. at well-known restaurants, well-known diners, uh, government buildings. You see those start to recur uh, in other movies and, and certainly certainly later on uh, as far as that's concerned. I referenced to you when we were talking about ha- uh, having this conversation, Point Blank, and then you corrected me that Point Blank actually takes place, I think, if not exclusively, in San Francisco, right? That's right, yeah. So it's not really Los Angeles, but like if you talk about like the 40s and then it, it then it jumps all the way to like 1973 with the long goodbye which is a movie i've never seen before that's elliot gould uh yeah mm-hmm. is he playing marlo in that movie that's right yeah it's like a modern updating of marlo but the thing is is that they almost have him out as like uh, out of step with the times okay you know like he's playing uh definitely a 70s you know marlo with with the 70s styled hair and so forth the longish hair but his dress he's disheveled is almost like philip marlowe stepped from the late 40s into 1973 okay. and is trying to solve this case in the midst of the social mores of that time okay you know okay. so it's, it's very interesting okay almost like a fish out of water captain america kind of a thing Kind of, yeah, exactly, oh. exactly, and you know, so there's the requisite things that you would that you would have found in the early seventies, like you know, there's there's hippies, there's free love, there's okay. you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just just all these things that you know really were happening in the culture in Los Angeles and maybe just overall on the West Coast, like in San Francisco and things like that. Mm-hmm. So just interesting to see how he deals with those, how he navigates that whole thing. Okay, okay. Yeah, I've, I've never seen it, and, and uh, I probably will at some point. Uh, but that came out in 1973, and then one year later was, of course, Chinatown. Yes. Uh, written by Robert Town and directed by Roman Polanski. Uh, starring Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway uh, and a bunch of character actors that we would see, you know, show up later on in other movies. And again, considered 
by many to be one of the greatest movies ever made, like one of the greatest examples of cinema and what cinema can do uh, when you marry a terrific script with great directing and cinematography and then great performances by your actors and so forth. But um, I remember maybe seeing that first time seeing that, maybe seeing a version of it on TBS edited. Yeah, same here. I saw it on Channel 36 down here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was probably my first time seeing it, and then of course I went back and either got it on VHS or on DVD, and then watched it, uh, watched it uncut. Yep. And um, just a dazzling movie in terms of, uh, you know, the way it's executed and the way it's put together. Jack Nicholson at the height of Jack Nicholsonness. You know, if that's <laughs> even a, uh, if that's even a thing. Rewatching that here recently, one of the things I picked up about it, you know, other than the you know the things that people would will obviously point to, were some of the details and some of the choices that you know Polanski and his collaborators made in the movie. For instance, let's say com- uh, comparing Chinatown to later on in uh, in the two thousands with uh, 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 not the two thousands, excuse me, in the nineties with uh, L.A. Confidential. Okay. Yeah. Um. The suits that the guys wear in L.A. Confidential, some of the guys are super dapper, but some of them are a little oversized coats, not quite fit, cut, tailored to fit. You know, uh, not really snazzy dressers other than, of course, Kevin Spacey's character. Uh, Jack, Jack Vincennes. Vin- yeah. Jack Vincennes. Uh, Vincennes. Um, but in Chinatown, everybody is dapper. Right. Everybody is to the nines. Every suit is cut, looks great. Every collar is nailed down as if it's got, you know, uh, uh, epoxy underneath it. You know, just everything looks great. And on top of that, like the hats and all of that. Snappy. Yeah. There are several scenes in the movie, like just trying to stay true to the times where, you know, back in those days, if you were wearing a jacket that didn't match the pants, you were not dressed. Mm Mm-hmm. A suit was you were dressed when you were wearing a suit. You were your outfit was complete when you had a hat, you know, either a you know pork pie or a slouch or a fedora, whatever it is. You had to have your hat. And there are several times in the movie, to, again, to stay true to the times where um, Jake gets in a scuffle. His hat falls off. And before he leaves, he gets the hat. He gets it. he makes sure not right. to leave his hat. Even when he goes at the end of the movie, you know, into the third act, when he um, he he tricks the cops into taking him to Curly's house, mm-hmm. and he says, "No, we got to go now. We got to go now." And he puts Curly's coat on him and rushes him out the back door, and he reaches down and grabs the hat off the floor. And I thought that that was an amazing detail because that was an important piece to your outfit. You just you were going to feel incomplete if you didn't have that hat on to go along with your suit. But I think that, along with a few other things, really. There were a lot of details that made that one feel, even though it was shot 40 years later, it felt like the 30s. Yeah. And, you know, um, speaking to that, you know, there's also a piece of dialogue where he talks about the type of shoes that he specific. It's like floor shine shoes. Yeah. You know, yeah, things like that. You know what I mean? And the thing that attracted me to Chinatown is that attention to detail. Like, it's crazy. When I caught it on regular TV, like I said, on Channel 36, one Sunday afternoon, you know, I'm already a history type guy. Mm-hmm. So I'm turning and I see this thing going that look, obviously takes place back in the 30s, but it looks new. Like it looked like newer. So I'm like, right. So that stopped me right there. Like, what is this? What, what's going on? You know, 
And then I pulled into the story, you know, ch- just checking that out. You know what I'm saying? And and the interesting thing about Chinatown is, is, you know, it's reflective of not not just the time period that it takes place in, but also of the time period that it was written in. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're talking about post-Watergate, post-Nixon. The country is, like, very distrustful of people in power, which is one of the... Um, key elements that works in Chinatown. Right. You know what I'm saying? Just like you have this this old old money, you know, who wants more of it and the corruption and the just overhaul that he takes to get it. You know what I'm saying? And, he, and he's just, he's just, oh man, what is the word? Like he is just, he don't care. Like he admits that, no, I want what I want, and I'm going to take it. What What was John Houston's character in that? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm blanking on the name. He was uh, Cross. That's right, Noah Cross. Noah Cross, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Noah Cross, man, just just evil. Yeah. Evil. He was intently evil. He was a, socio- he was a, uh, a sociopath. Yeah. You know what I mean? What I want, I want. And he's not even, like, negotiating or even, you know, there's no moral quandary in his brain when i want something i want it and i get it and i take Mm -hmm. it if i have to you know and that's that's just what it's gonna be yeah so yeah i didn't even think about that in terms of town writing that in the 70s post watergate and that that bringing in that element of conspiracy and not and being distrustful of uh of those in power um but yeah that's exactly right and he used it well in, in in a kind of a historical fiction kind of way uh, with the drought and and, and, and those mm-hmm. kinds of things and marrying all those elements uh, together. Um, what did you think about, because I know there was a lot of back and forth between Town and with uh, Polanski on the ending where Faye Dunaway's character, um, and, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a big, you know, shoe that gets dropped, you know, uh, at the end of the second act of the movie. And then at the end of the movie, you know, she's trying to flee with her with her daughter and she ends up being killed. Mm. What did you think about that as an ending? Did it did it resonate with you in the sense as a viewer, as someone who was absorbing the story, that that's the way it should have happened? That's what that's the only way it could have ended. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it plays in a couple of ways. One is. I think it played against people's expectation of movies about that period. Like, we like to think of, like, the 30s. Obviously, that's after the Great Depression, you know, and we like to think of it almost as, quote-unquote, a golden age, sort right. of. Right. You know, but sometimes if you look back through history, there really were no such thing as the good old days. No. You know, the same shit that happens today ha- happened back then. Maybe differently, but it still happened. And so that particular ending... It plays against the expectations that we have when we see movies like that, when we think of that period. You know what I'm saying? It's very much in the realm of like uh, Bonnie and Clyde, which did the same thing. Right. 30s gangsters, bank robbers, but there's this big shoot up at the end, violent, bloody. You know, that's not what you associate when you think of movies made about that period from the past. Right. And so with Chinatown, that's what's happening here. And just, yeah. It had to happen that way. Just the whole mood of the story leads to that. Right. And that great line that can apply to just anything. Oh, come on, Jake. It's Chinatown. 
Chinatown is just the, the elusiveness of what you were looking for. And it just slips between your fingers like sand. Right. Right. You know, maybe it was real. Maybe it wasn't. But it's Chinatown, Jake. Come on. Right. Let's go. Right. And Chinatown yeah. is kind of a metaphor for right. things that don't work out. Don't invest yourself too much. You know, it's you think it's going your way and it's not going your way. So, you know, just kind of like like a shoulder shrug emoji in yeah. a way. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we move on, you and I were talking uh, prior to recording, man. We were talking about this scene with, you know, putting aside his, his future crimes, which were just yes. a few years <laughs> after this. Roman Polanski uh, uh, playing the, uh, the little tiny gangster in the, uh, in the white suit. You know, hey, hey kitty, kitty cat. cat. Hey, kitty cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh? You stick your nose in, huh, kitty cat? Huh? You know what happens? You stick your nose in. <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, huh? You know what happens, huh? Yeah. Hey, get that nose, Scott. Yo! <laughs> Hello, Claude. Where'd you get the midget? You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to nosy fellows? Huh? No? Wanna guess? Huh? No? Okay. They lose their noses. Next time you lose the whole thing. Cut it off and feed it to my goldfish. Understand? Understand? I understand, Gary. I understand. All right. Just that scene aside, I was like, okay, he did that, yo. <laughs> oh, it was great. I was like, man. And, you know, when I first yeah. saw it the first couple of times, I didn't realize that was Roman Polanski. Right, right. You know, I was like, who is this guy? Like, he's, he's for that little bit that he's playing, he's good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he really is. He really is. Moving forward, man, um, you know, you have a crime thriller with a little bit of a uh, kind of a legal edge to it like the star chamber in uh in 1983 you know with michael douglas and hal holbrook hal holbrook and, yeah uh and, a, and again a bunch of great character actors that we see uh show up in a lot of things as a matter of fact one of the judges in the star chamber was the receptionist that jake is ba uh, badgering in uh chinatown yeah, for real? Oh, yeah, I, I forget the actress's name, um, but I've seen her in many other things, and she's done some comedic stuff. Like I think she made a show up on Sanford and the Sun at one point. Uh, uh, okay. But she's but she's been around a long time. But she she's one of the judges uh, in the uh, in the Star Chamber, which is a great movie, and but doesn't make particular use of L.A. in any way, other than the fact that that's where the story takes place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you do see the hills, and you do see. You know some of the uh, you know some of the uh, the LA scenery at the beginning of the movie when they're uh, chasing down the uh, the criminal and they go through his garbage and that kind of sets the whole story in motion. But it doesn't make particular use of of the city. And that was kind of the other thing I was going to mention is is like of all the movies we're going to discuss, you know they they all they fall in different categories. You know you've got uh, genre films that take place in Los Angeles, like we mentioned. You know you've got lone detective stories. Mm -hmm. uh, noir stories, and those would be like like Devil in a Blue Dress, L.A. Confidential yeah. to an extent, Big Sleep, Chinatown. Then you later on you've got like crime thrillers like The Star Chamber, um, Deep Cover. Oh yeah, and I would also and I would also mention Ricochet. Didn't Ricochet take place? Well, yeah, no way. Yes, it did because it because it ends at the Watts it, it Tower. The Watts Tower. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> 
I forgot about that one. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Nick Styles. <laughs> How smooth is that? Uh, yeah. Sir, Nick when Styles. your name is Styles, you're supposed to be smooth. <laughs> you're supposed to be, be able to strip down to your draws in public and everybody be cool with it. <laughs> but uh, but also Reservoir Dogs, you know, just a crime yeah. thriller. Um, cops and Robbers, you know, something like Training Day. Or that's really more like cops as robbers, I guess. Uh, right, there you go. <laughs> and Heat, you know. Mm. And then you've got crime dramas, you know, like uh, The Limey. Mm. Um, and then, you know, action crime and other, thi- and other things like that. But it almost seems like to an extent for a crime film, I was going to ask you what you thought about this. You have to have a criminal as almost, maybe not the protagonist, but as a protagonist, because you have to spend time with them. You have to spend time in the underworld in order to kind of feel them. Otherwise, the movie does become kind of procedural or maybe, you know, copaganda to an extent. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's the thing about... I think that's the main thing about crime movies, you know, not just, you know, L.A. crime movies, but crime movies overall. Sure. Is that it? it's a doorway into this other... Um, class that you know we read about, we see on the evening news. Just you know, unfortunately, some of us are uh, a party to on the receiving end. You know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but we want to see what type of mindset goes into these type of people to do this stuff. Right. So you have to be a protagonist. You have to look at it from their point of view. Right. In order to glean what exactly it is how they go about it, you know what I'm saying? And some of the best movies work that way, you know? So it's almost like you're almost rooting for them in a way to get away, not just necessarily because, you know, they're the villain or whatever. It's because, damn, I want to see if this, can they actually pull this off? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Unless it's something truly heinous, you know, if it's like a heist movie, you kind of want to see, damn, you saw them plan it. You saw them get everything together. You saw them stake out the place. You saw them case the joint, and now they're going to execute the plan. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you, you're you're exactly right, and and you you become invested in whatever you know, whatever uh, the heist is or whatever the robbery is. You become invested in it, um, mm-hmm. and and, it's, and I've always loved uh, crime movies for that reason because they do show the life of a professional criminal. Yeah, it's their job. You know, in Reservoir Dogs, Steve Buscemi's character, Mr. Pink, he says, I'm a professional thief. You know, you guys are acting like amateurs, you know, and the idea that there would be a professional who would approach this like a vocation. <laughs> you know, this wasn't a one off. Somebody just decided to snatch a purse or to, to rob a convenience store. This is a job. You know, this is how I do what I do. Right. <laughs> um, and even like the cops and robbers aspect of it, that was one of the things about Heat that I really liked is, is it felt like Vincent's character and Macaulay's character were in like in a weird way, like like twins, like like joined at the hip in some weird way. Mm-hmm. Like once they met, they were joined at the hip and they couldn't get away from each other. And and then their confrontation was a bit like the immovable object and the irresistible force. It's like, which one is actually gonna, gonna win in this, uh, you know, in this, uh, in this battle, you know, so to speak. 
And, you know, and that's interesting because, you know, even at the, the ending of that where, you know, Vince said, you know, um, shoots Macaulay, mm-hmm. you know, and they kind of, you know, clasped hands, like almost like <laughs> in a weird way, almost like brothers, almost like a brotherhood. It's like, I got you, but at the same time, I, I, I didn't want to get you. You know what I'm saying? But I had to. Yeah. Yeah. But even Nate, even in the movie, uh, John Voight's character, Nate says, uh, he talked to he talked to one of his uh, his his captains or one of his people on the inside of the police precinct. He said, "Yeah, he says that guy Vincent. Yeah, he likes you. He thinks you're a star." Yeah. And then, and 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 for a minute, Macaulay kind of go. He kind of like, okay, yeah. I am a fucking star. <laughs> <laughs> he does that that the Nero cut up. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That mm. mugging. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> But but moving into the 90s, man, we've got to talk about um, Reservoir Dogs, which you've mentioned, and True Romance, and also Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Uh, as that kind of sweet spot for Tarantino where he really put L.A. crime movies back on the map in a big way, no pun intended, um, <laughs> you know, with those films. You know, they're all very, very Los Angeles you know, from, you know, the mentions of the area codes and Pulp Fiction. I don't know nobody in 805, 803 or whatever he says, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, references to the, again, to the valley and to the hills and, and places like that. Um, and even like something like True Romance, which Tarantino wrote. He didn't direct it. Tony Scott directed it. That's right. But that's a movie where it actually employs criminal activity with, you know, pop culture and comic books and, you know, and, and uh, uh, martial arts movies. But then you bring in like these guys, these actors who want to make it. And then this Hollywood producer who's, you know, they try to sell the cocaine, you know, like it brings in true Hollywood elements or true Los Angeles elements, people, you know, who are in the, in the city working and makes it a part of the whole criminal enterprise. The first time I saw that movie, I was like, first of all, this is a monster of a movie with this huge cast. But it seems to work for the most part. Um, when, when was the first time you saw that movie and, and did it strike you in the same way? Hmm. I think I first saw that movie, I think probably when I was maybe 17 or 18. And, you know, that was obviously after I had seen Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And I was reaching the peak of that that Tarantino mania. <laughs> yeah. I was getting up there, man. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, through, through research, I was like, oh, he wrote that too? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And I thought it was cool because, again, it had those other pop culture elements of, oh, man, he works in a comic book shop. He, he He's name dropping comic books. Yes. He's name dropping yes. like, <laughs> like kung fu movies that I've seen. I was like, oh, man, this is great. This is great. You know? And, it, it was cool in that way. And, and the thing about True Romance and really all of those Tarantino movies is that they're so centric, like you said, to L.A., even now to the look of L.A., you know, going back to the top of the conversation where you were talking about, you know, the geography, if you will, of New York, you know, just these tall buildings that which form like dark canyons. Right. And everybody's just trying to navigate them. Mm-hmm. Everything is low out in L.A. Mm-hmm. Like you can see over the tops of buildings and everything. Everything is just avenues of like low, low rises, if you will. Always sunny and everything. 
you know, and that's the sense that you get from those Tarantino movies, yeah. you know, in the early 90s. You know, everything is very low. It's almost like it's low as the culture is being portrayed as lowbrow, too. And there was a big movement around that time of lowbrow culture, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, of like, you know, pop culture, like comics and uh, certain movies and things like that. You know what I'm saying? So it's almost as if he really had his finger on the pulse of that. That was really something that was going on at large. He was able to personify that within the script and, you know, later when he was directing those movies as well, you know. Because he partially lived that life, not the criminal life, so to speak. Right, yeah. But the other pop culture um, uh, attached elements of that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, going to see Sonny Chiba movies, you know, Sonny Chiba double feature. And, <laughs> and 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 also, too, like the whole melting pot aspect of it. I, that was kind of another thing that I got as well is, you know, Tarantino's movies are like a gumbo. Of all, all the things that he thinks are interesting, and even things like you said that were considered lowbrow or kind of like throwaway entertainment, yeah, they almost became elevated after you know Tarantino's movies became so successful, to where people thought more about comic books and they thought more about martial arts, you know, mixed with you know traditional action movie and American films. They thought more about you know referencing old movies and old slang with you know, modern day movies and modern slang. And then, of course, you get a ton of films that kind of bite on the gangsters ha- gangsters having, you know, normal conversations about shoe sizes and foot massages and, and where they like to eat and, you know, things that, that give them gas and my girlfriend's a vegetarian. You know, all these, these kind of what would be nonsense conversations, but he made them, like, incredibly interesting. So you get, like, a two days in the valley after that. You know, you you get a lot of movies that were that were in the vein, Tarantino vein, so to speak, but certainly falling short from, you know, from what he was able to do. I did want to mention one thing, and I just thought about it when you brought up True Romance. You know, Mm -hmm. it was directed by Tony Scott. You know, speaking on Tarantino, you know, there's another L.A. crime movie that that we should mention, too, just just as a passing. That Tony Scott directed, and that's uh, the Last Boy Scout with uh, Bruce Willis oh, and yeah, yeah. Uh, Damon Wayans. That is totally, totally L.A. You know the the overpasses where they have like that big car chase and shootout. Yeah, there's a certain bridge that is always used in every L.A. movie where Damon Wayans falls and he lands on top of the car. Mm-hmm. That bridge, wherever that is, that's in every L.A. movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too, that, you know, Tony Scott directed three movies that Tarantino had kind of a little hand in. You know, he did the re-dialogue on Crimson Tide. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, he wrote the story for True Romance that Tony Scott directed. And maybe maybe that's it. He didn't have anything to do with Last Boy Scout, obviously. So it was just those two. I'm sorry. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah, I just thought that that was interesting, too. And it's funny how Tony Scott's directing is also very L.A. as well, you know, that very, like, right, right, right. shaded and just sunny, it's orange, it's hot, you mm-hmm. feel the heat, you know, neon, 
Yeah. Yeah, and the, the, the smoky rooms. <laughs> yeah, just like, and, and I'm telling you, yeah, that started in Beverly Hills Cop 2. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, y'all smoking a lot in here, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the fan on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that, I, that, and, you know, when I first watched uh, Reservoir Dogs, yeah. I, I instantly was like, what else has this guy done? What else has he been involved in? So I found out that he, you know, he wrote Natural Born Killers. And I instantly put together that this was a world because all the characters were starting to overlap. You know, there are mentions of Pulp Fiction, mentions of Alabama's character in Pulp Fiction. Uh, there are mentions in uh, Reservoir Dogs of a, um, uh, a parole officer named Scagnetti. Scagnetti. Mm-hmm. And then later on, Tom Sizemore plays a character named Scagnetti in Natural Born Killers. You know, the uh, the Vega brothers, Vincent and Victor Vega, you know, just all of those things. I instantly picked up on all that stuff. But another thing that I kind of got too, man, was um, in a lot of and maybe it goes back to the whole transplant thing that I was mentioning earlier. You know, a lot of L.A. crime movies feature tons of New York actors. You know, like, and 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 I get it to some extent because you know, two friends of 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 the uh, of the show, so to speak. Well, one friend of the show, our friend Warren, you know, he's from a, a neighborhood in Queens, and now he lives and makes his his living in L.A. And then uh, Tony Purrier, who's uh, someone I'm, you know that I'm friendly with uh, through social media. Same thing. He's from New York. You know, he's a screenwriter and he's a comic artist, comic creator, artist, and yeah. yeah, and a musician. Mm-hmm. But he lives in L.A. as well. So I think a lot of a lot of New Yorkers do go to L.A. and end up making their life there. But I just thought it was interesting. Like if you look at the films we're talking about, Bogart is from New York. Right. Bacall's from New York. Right. Cagney's from New York. Barbara Stanwyck's from New York. Steve Buscemi's from New York. Denzel's from New York. Training Day. Yeah. De Niro's from New York. Yeah. <laughs> Al Pacino, I think, is from like West Harlem or something, you know, way back in the day. Yeah. Uh, Louis, even Luis Guzman, you know, in um, uh, the Limey, he was born in Puerto Rico, but he's you know he's raised in New York. Born he's in New a, York. yeah, he's a yeah. New Yorker. Uh, and even if we were going to talk about you know the less than successful Lakeview Terrace, uh, which stars Kerry Washington, she's from the Bronx. Ah, okay. So there are a ton of New York actors that end up in these Los Angeles movies, uh, are Los Angeles based movies, and I thought it was interesting. We were talking about Tom Sizemore a minute ago, man. Yeah, I was rewatching Heat, and we're in the uh, in the '90s, so we're about to roll into definitely roll into uh, into our Heat portion of the conversation. Yeah, let's let's yeah. <laughs> let's get some heat on these oh. hands, yo. <laughs> <laughs> but I was rewatching Heat, um, which came out in '95, '95, '95, and I was just thinking, this rewatching this like literally days ago. I was like, damn, this might be my favorite Tom Sizemore performance. He is killing it. As you know, Michael Chirino as this as this uh, as this character, but then I thought, no, I liked him as uh, Sly Del Vecchio in Passenger Fifty Seven. <laughs> he had a bit part in True Romance as a uh, as a DEA agent or something. Uh, I liked him in Tombstone. He's in Tombstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays Bat Masterson, I believe, and I liked him in Devil in a Blue Dress as Albr- Albright. He was a despicable scumbag cop who was hassling uh denzel's character but i liked him in that you know he was menacing and you know and i hated him but he my favorite performance by him might be 
in Justice League as Metamorpho. He was in Justice League? He, he, voiced, <laughs> as Meta- he voiced Metamorpho in Justice League, yo. And he was fantastic. Two episodes. He was fantastic. So I was, at first I was like, maybe this is it. And then I was like, I don't know if this is peak Tom Sizemore for, for me. Because uh, he's, he's been around a long time. Of course, he was in, you know, uh, Saving Private Ryan and uh, mm-hmm. I think he was in Point Break too. you know, back in, mm-hmm. what, 91, something like that, you know. Yeah. So, but man, Heat is probably, other than like L.A. Confidential, Heat might be the next to last quintessential Los Angeles crime film. I think the subtitle on my DVD says a crime a crime saga, you know, and yeah. and it really is a saga because in my rewatch of it, is that movie three hours long? It's close. It's close, <laughs> man. <laughs> I was watching it and I had, you know, I had to pause it and do something and come back to it. And my wife came around. She was like, are you still watching this movie? And in, like, <laughs> fact, in fact, in fact, I know it's close to three hours because I remember when I first bought it on VHS when I was a teenager, it came on two tapes. Yes. It came on two cassettes. Yeah. And then eventually they were able to condense it down to one cassette. But I remember buying it on two cassettes. I was like, wow. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. And, you know, that movie, Michael Mann is another one. He's a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. That movie to me, when I saw it, I mean... You and I, you know, we had an exchange about this before. You talk about an all-star freaking cast. Oh yeah. Just great performances. You know, the, the 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 male actors and female actors and just the writing and you know, the times where certain actors are getting kind of bit parts and then they get a moment to do a little monologue and to do the little thing. You know, like when Michael T. Williams says you know what happens. First, he goes into foster homes. Then he steals the then car. Then he goes to Gladiator School. Then he goes school. to Gladiator Academy. <laughs> Gladiator School. And then you don't. And you know what? I don't even have to sell this shit because this shit sells itself. Sells itself. I was like, damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that was great. And um, and even Ashley Judge's performance as Charlene, you know, where she's under the pressure. And, you know, she, she loves... Um, she loves uh, Chris's character, uh, but, but she realizes that, you know, they need to go their separate ways, but they're too tied. They have their son, Dominic, all of that. The fact that, you know, Macaulay is, in, you know, is, is kind of a part of their relationship, almost as his father figure to the whole crew. Um, you know, that, that opening scene in the beginning where they uh, they rob the uh, the armored truck, the armored, the armored truck. And uh, and then when Vincent shows up and he's casing the place, he's saying, oh, this happened. And they're telling him, OK, looks like the shooter popped here, popped here, da, da, da. And he says, OK. And he says, this tells us that they're they're technically proficient, you know, the explosives that they use. And he says they got out in three minutes. They didn't take any money. And then he talks about, you know, they could take this freeway, or that freeway to get away. And then they tore just all of it. And, and, and it just the fact that we live so long, like I said, with the criminals and we see the life of a criminal. You know, we see, you know, we get hints of their background. You know, we get hints that um, that Neil's character, Neil McCauley's character, Jack Nero, Nero, Robert De Niro's character, you know, did some time with Chris. That's probably where they met. Yeah. You know, and he talks about, remember, uh, whoever owned the yard, and he used to say, never have anything in your life. You know, he makes that speech about the heat coming around the corner. I don't know what you're doing. 
Remember Jimmy McElwain on the yard used to say, you want to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Remember that? For me, the sun rises and sets with her, man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, so you get a sense that how they kind of know each other and why they're so close. Um, just all of it, man. But what what was the when was the first time you saw Heat, man? And were you a Michael Mann fan prior to seeing Heat? Had you seen uh, Manhunter? Mm-mm. Or uh, certainly, had, I'm sure you had seen uh, uh, Miami Vice. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where I knew Michael Mann from, you know, just tangentially, you know, from Miami Vice, you know what I'm saying? But um, I saw Heat when I was 17. Like I said, I bought it on those two, (laughs) in a two cassette (laughs) box. (laughs) And uh, man, it just really, I remember when I saw it, it just just completely took me over, man. Like I ended up going... (laughs) This show how this shows how old it was. Uh, Columbia House had those oh, offers God. back then. You know, <laughs> you know so, so I got a bunch of CDs, and amongst them was the Heat soundtrack. <laughs> That's how long ago that was. But yeah, man, it just took my world over. Just like, damn, this is crazy. Yeah. This is so good. This is um. I know the young people today overuse the word epic, but to me at that time, it was epic. Yes. Truly epic. Yes. In every sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, just in my rewatch the other day, I mean, I've probably seen the movie more than a dozen times, at least probably a dozen times. Yeah. yeah. When they leave that bank and the cops are pulling up and laying in wait for them, Yep, down, 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 down. And Chris down. comes out, and he's smiling, and then he, the truck goes by, and then he sees that cop, and he immediately... Get down. And then, you know, as, um, you know, they start taking out, like, they're, they're basically handing the cops their asses. The, the cops get their asses handed to them, yo. I mean, it is, it is not even a question. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as they're shooting, turn around, shooting the other way. And Tom Sizemore's doing his thing. And, you know, the, like, the storytelling that man uses with, you know, like, in downtown L.A. I assume it's downtown L.A. It's supposed to be anyway. Yeah. Um. But the storytelling, you always get a sense of what it is is going on. Where they're at, yep. Yeah, where they are. where they, And if there's even a point where you see something happen, and you see Tom Sizemore get cut off from the two other guys, and that's when he ends up running off and then taking that child as a human shield, and, and Vincent ends up chasing him and killing him. But you always get the sense, you know, like the whole time they're firing, you know, and Chris is like, go! And then they advance, like in two-man formations, because they're trying to get past the barrier where the cops are. And you're constantly seeing them get closer and closer. And the cops' cars are looking like Swiss cheese. And it's closer <laughs> and closer. And, uh, and it's just, 
it's just mm. wonderful, yo. Just wonderful. <laughs> Man, it, do, do you think perhaps that that is like one of the, if not the best staged um, movie firefight? I mean, and, and that, that's a broad statement, you know, because you're taking war movies into account, too, and things like that. But everything is perfect. You are never lost in the midst of that whole scene. Right, 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 right. And it, and it looks completely authentic. Um, they look like they were well-trained on how to fire the weapons. Um, the sound effects, I think I told you before, oh, you know, man. my understanding is, is when they got back into the editing room, they tried to put in like Foley, like, you know, sound effects for the shot. And man was like, what's wrong? Why does it sound like that? It doesn't sound as, as good as it did on, you know, on, on location. So they took the sound effects from a location and used those. And that's why like in the theater, I, cause I saw this in the theater, in the theater, it was like thunderclaps. It was yeah. It was like something you had never heard before. And then the fact that the shootout went on for as long as it did. You know, where it's like, okay, like you said earlier in the movie, Jesus Christ, these guys are going to get away with this. They're going to shoot their way out of probably a dozen cops and, and you know, whatever. They're going to shoot their way out of this shit, you know? Yeah, man. It was insane. It was really, really, really insane. But um, but he is by far, I think, my, probably my favorite L.A. crime movie. Mm. Um, you know, for all the things, you know, the performances, the idea that, you know, that Pacino and De Niro are in a movie together and in a scene together, that great diner scene. Yeah. Where he stops Macaulay on the side of the road and says, hey, why don't I buy you a cup of coffee? Mm-hmm. And then they're sitting down across from each other. Again, the players on the other side, you know, this kind of standoff, but it's a quiet standoff. You know, we're sitting here talking like a couple of fellas, you know, but what if one day I got to put you down? And then De Niro gives his, there's a flip side to that coin. <laughs> what if you do got me boxed in <laughs> and I got to put you down? Right. <laughs> I, I will not hesitate. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and he even tells him, he says, yeah, you know, when he comes around the corner, you got to drop everything in your life. And he says, you're going to do that to your woman? He says, that's the discipline. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow. You cold-blooded, Neil McCauley, but I love you, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was he was so good. Like, his character was so good in that. And, you know, there's, you know, a couple of times, well, actually, I can think of one time prior to the dining scene where they had, like, a, a standoff of sorts, even though they were in different different buildings you know yeah remember they're doing a stakeout on that um that whatever that newsomatic or whatever that place was that they were trying to break into and just neil could sense this don't just don't feel right right you know and one of the one, just one of the off off characters you know it's just kind of shifting his weight a little bit he bumps against the side of the stakeout truck and, and neil just like what <laughs> and just that that the, the thermal Close up on his face. Yes. And the, the close up on Pacino. It's like, and then they're looking at each other over the monitor, so you know, so to speak. But it's almost, like, oh, but man. almost looking eye to eye, and it's like, yeah. And then he says, "We walk." Yes. And Chris is like, "What? We walk?" He says, "We walk. We walk." He's like, "Okay." And so they leave, and then and then the cops are like, "Let's take them. Let's take them." He says, "No, yeah. you will not take them." He says, "I have, I have tactical command. You will let them. Li- you, they walk, and you will let them." <laughs> you <know? Fuck. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was it's it was just great. It was just masterful. And I don't know, have you I'm sure you have. You've seen that um I guess it it wasn't Miami Vice. It was a uh, a television movie that Michael Mann wrote. You, are you talking about um not LA Takedown? I think it's LA Takedown. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where he he essentially wrote that diner scene in the movie. Oh. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yes, and it, I, I believe it's LA Takedown. He wrote that same diner scene where the criminal and the and they have the and they say much of the same the, the context is very much the same. They have the same kind of exchange. Well, maybe we'll just never see each other again, blah, 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 and they go their separate ways. Now, of course, it's not Pacino and De Niro good. Right. <laughs> but it's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But anyway, man, um, let's talk about your, your one of your favorites, Jackie Brown, and, uh, mm. and also talk a little bit about, uh, of course, L.A. Confidential. And we can wrap it up there. But, you know, when I first started doing my research, I was like, Jackie Brown? But it's it's in Los Angeles. It takes place in L.A. like any other Tarantino film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels very Tarantino, you know, with the kind of dumpy apartments and, uh, you know, just all of it. You know, uh, all of it. it. It definitely has that. But th- I know that's one of your favorites. So I'll let you speak to it, man. I was just, I was just gonna say yeah it is totally totally Los Angeles I mean they even talk about the city of Hawthorne which is a suburb of Los Angeles on like kind of the, the 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 brother side of Los Angeles you know what I'm saying <laughs> it's just the, it's just the fact that it feels like it feels like um, when you go into like the um, the um, the Bell's Barn. Um, place right 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 that that robert forster you know owns and operates you know it feels like i've been there yeah i've been to there well i actually have been there but go ahead (laughs) (laughs) just just like the the wood paneling on the walls that kind of dour fluorescent like it really felt lived in you know what i'm saying and that's that's one of the other things I don't think people give um, Tarantino a lot of credit for, you know, um, him working with his production designer to say, hey, not only let's make this really authentically L.A. by shooting in these locations, we could also make sure that we put certain details in here and shoot in certain places to make this this story can happen nowhere else. Right. Nowhere else. You know what I'm saying? Right. I think that's the power of that movie, too. You know, and of course, you had the performances by obviously Pam Greer, uh, Robert De Niro, Samuel Jackson, Chris Tucker, Bridget Fonda, just a really all star cast there, too. Right. But they all play kind of archetypes, if you will, of those of people that you would perhaps see out in L.A. You know what I'm saying? You have Bridget Fonda playing like this wannabe actress, kind of, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you, you have... Uh, Pam Greer, she's a flight attendant, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so she, she's always in and out of the city and so forth. And then you got Samuel Jackson is kind of like, you know, the man about town. Like, he knows his way around the town. Jackie Jack. Hey. Damn. I'm going to have to remember this place. It's all right. About two minutes from your crib, ten minutes from the gig. What's your Not drink, bad. brother? Uh, let me get a screwdriver on. How you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Yes, you are. 
Damn, I bet you come in here on a Saturday night, you need nigga repellent to keep the motherfuckers off your ass. Oh, I do okay. Bullshit, Jackie. You a fine motherfucker. I bet you do a damn sight better than okay. You know, and, you know, you got De Niro playing Louie, who's, you know, maybe from one of those one of those jails or prisons around there, Corcoran Bay or something like that. Right, right, so right. So it's all like, yes, yeah, so it's all people that you would probably run into if you ran along those same lines out there in L.A. So it's like it's inextricable. And, and, and obviously Robert Forrester is the bail bondsman. You know what I'm saying? Like inextricably, you, you cannot tear that movie away from it being uh, a total L.A. movie. And I, I love it so much because of the performances and because it just feels lived in. You know, Tarantino was saying that in a way, he wanted to make that movie. <laughs> and I felt him when he said this. He was like, I want to make this movie for like those Sunday afternoons where like, you know, the um, like when older or middle-aged, you know, black people, black, you know, men and women go to the movies, you know, mm -hmm. on Sundays. Right. I was like, yes, go on, proceed. And, um, <laughs> and he was like, I kind of, I kind of wanted to make it for them. Cause I know that with, you know, Pam Greer being in it already, right. they're going to really appreciate that. And just a good old, just a, just a crime type thing going on. And I really think he hit it on the head. And when he said that, um, I think it was on a uh, a featurette or something. I felt that. I was like, "Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like." It felt it felt like a movie I would go to see with my mom on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> it it was better than the black exploitation era, so to speak, but it definitely felt familiar to it in that way. You know, the movies that my parents and that my you know and their peers would watch. You know, back in the seventies. Yeah, and also too, that was a movie where, you know. For, for lack of a, a better or kinder way to say this, where the entire cast kind of feels like they're on their last hurrah. Mm -hmm. Robert De Niro is an older kind of a, a of a muscle character. He's not going to be the muscle much longer. He's in his 50s at the time, probably. Same thing, Samuel Jackson, you know, feels like, you know, he's he's the gangster and he's the antagonist. But like you said, he's charming and he's talkative. You know, that whole time he's talking his ass off while he's paying the bail bondsman to get Chris Tucker out so that he can murder him in the trunk later. But he's the gangster, but he's not the smartest guy in the world. You know, he makes mistakes and he, you know, he puts he puts trust in in the wrong places. And his his world is it's, it's his time for his reign to end. Same thing with with Jackie Brown. You know, she's in her 40s. She's a flight attendant. You know, she's hustling and doing this, doing this, uh, you know, this uh, smuggling thing, I think, on the side. I can't remember. The, but, you know, that's right. This is kind of it. And Robert Forrester, you get a sense that maybe he might have had a more prominent role or prominent job in law enforcement at some point. And now he's kind of, you know, he's in his uh, his best days are behind him kind of a way, you know, and, th and he and Pam McGregor have a romance, don't they, at some point? They do, and that's one of the things that, you know, helps, too. The fact that, just like you said, that's a great point, man. You know, it kind of puts the movie on, on a certain level, and in a good way. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to be no, you know, grand shootout. It's not going to be all energetic or whatnot. It puts it on an approachable level. You know what I mean? And the romance between Forrester and Greer 
really works. It's just really nice to see um, actors at that age have like, you know, a scene like that together, you know, and have the interaction together. It really helped the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It se- and seemed authentic. And, and I have to agree with you about the fact that, you know, Tarantino really tells tales that, like they can't, they can only be done in L.A. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. the references and, and and the restaurants and all of those things. And, and Jackie Brown is an example is an example of that. But um, you were mentioning La Hawthorne as far as like the the brother side of town. You know that was kind of uh, just a light to touch lightly on like set it off and um, and Training Day. That was the thing that I liked about those movies as L.A. crime movies is that you got a sense of. You know, and I, I'm, I don't, I'm not from Los Angeles, so I maybe have my geography wrong, but you got a sense of we're talking about like Inglewood. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about East L.A., you know, areas where there are going to be blacks and Latinos mixing. They're going to be blacks and whites mixing uh, parts of town where, you know, where uh, dope smoking and weed smoking white kids are going to want to come to score. Right. You know, that kind of thing, you know, and, and all those things are inextricably Los Angeles. You know, Denzel and uh, Ethan Hawke's character spend a lot of time in the car. And that's what I remember when I was, the times that I've been in Los Angeles, we spent a lot of time in the car, yo. I mean, you know, you spent a lot of time driving. So that felt real to me, uh, definitely felt real to me uh, to, to have, to have those elements in there. But um, let's, 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 uh, let's end it on talking about LA Confidential, which, you and I talked about, and we knew that, you know, that was going to be an epic part of this conversation for a lot of reasons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Quite possibly, you know, uh, maybe Curtis Hansen's best movie. Oh, it is? Yeah. With no question. Okay. Yeah. It's his best movie. I love 8 Mile, and um, <laughs> he's, he did another one that I like. I can't remember the name of it. But I do love Eight Mile. I think Eight Mile. I think Eight Mile is is is, is great, especially for Eminem to be a non-actor. Right. <laughs> L.A. Confidential, not unlike Heat, is it's an epic. It is. It's nostalgic without being pastiche. Right. Uh, there are real senses of danger and peril for the characters. Again, like Heat, an all-star cast of uh, of actors and actresses. Uh, performances. There are moments in the movie that I remember and that I quote. There are scenes in the movie that I, you know, when I get to them, I'm like, oh, I forgot about this. You know, like when uh, when Exley says, you know, he finds out about the murder at the diner and he says, you know, he's the first on scene other than the uh, the patrolman. And he says, nobody gets in but me. And then he starts walking through the place and he starts seeing the bodies. Seeing, and, yes. Yeah, everything. And it's like, oh, man. Just everything about it, the, you know, the, the look of the movie, uh, the language used, you know, uh, uh, Danny DeVito's character, you know, hey, Jack, what's going on, boy chick? You know, blah, 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 you know, you know, 23 Skidoo and, you know, and hush, hush. So they're on the QT, QT. and they're yeah. hush, hush, you know, um, you know, just all of it. That whole that fake dragnet show, Law and Order. No, Badge of Honor, Badge of Honor. Yeah. Badge of Honor, you know. <laughs> and just, you know, the mixing of crime and Hollywood. And the fact that really and truly, there were no good characters in L.A. Confidential. Nobody was good. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of any character that I would say was a good character. 
Yeah, no, no, you're exactly right. Because I, and sometimes, a lot of times, you know, I think when a script is fully realized, mm -hmm. you come to see that because that's kind of like, in a lot of instances in actual life. Yeah. You know, everyone has a motivation of what they want. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And it was just kind of great to see, like, all the characters, for the most part, had agency, so to speak. Like, Exley was trying to solve the case, but then he got tangled up because he started having an affair with Kim Basinger's character. But Bud White was already having an affair with her because he got tangled up in it. And this goes into, you know, just everything just weaved in so beautifully. Yeah. Like, everything just dovetailed into one another and characters ended up butting heads or chance meetings and it all made sense yeah like oh man just just great to your point though my mom i i had this i bought this on um video cassette in 98 mm -hmm. 98 because it came out in 97 mm -hmm. my mom would watch that all the time she would like when i was out <laughs> at work or um going to art college um, I would come home and see the the box, you know, laying on the uh, coffee table because she would have watched it again. She loved that movie. She loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and the thing that makes L.A. Confidential work also is it's that same formula that works for Chinatown. It takes place in a period of time that people kind of associate, okay, it's the 50s. We're thinking post-World War II the boom years, you know, things like this, you know, kind of that all-American, quote-unquote, innocence. And it really wasn't, you know, it, there was no innocence going on there. We're talking about 1950s corrupt-ass L.A. with the corrupt-ass, you know, police department. Yeah. And just, no, man, no, no. Yeah. There were no good old days. No. You know. Not at all. And even going back and rewatching the movie and still being, you know, dazzled by the performances... And like you were talking about with Chinatown, you know, L.A. Confidential, it's this old sensibility, but you're using all of these modern film techniques and modern camera movements and, uh, and in ways of developing the film. You know, all these modern techniques to make this a much richer, more saturated experience as a viewer. So it's a heightened reality version of the 50s in Los Angeles, but it's not exactly the 50s. But to your point about that there being no go no good old days, I was texting you while I was watching. I was like, okay, the way they are shitting on the brown people and the black people in this movie, and of course it's historically accurate. Right, of course, yeah. Horrible. And even, you know, to my point before about there being no good characters, even though you see them pick up, you know, these the black youths and they take them to the station and they separate them, they start interrogating them, and they start trying to pin these ghastly murders on these these young guys. And and they're not sure that they did it. They think they did it. But we find out later on that the guns and the uh, and the money were planted. Mm -hmm. But we're not sure that they did it. And it doesn't seem like they did it. But then we find out that these guys were involved in a gang rape. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, oh. <laughs> Damn. Oh. And, um... And even though the guy sitting there in his drawers watching TV and eating cereal was a scumbag son of a bitch who deserved, he deserved to be put down oh, oh. and just passed out. You know? yeah. oh. <laughs> Bud White, despite the fact of growing up in an abusive household and seeing his father kill his mother and then growing up in foster care, 
and finally becoming a cop and defending and having a real thing for defending, you know, battered women and women in trouble. You're still a piece of shit. He still beat up Kim Basinger's character, Lynn Bracken. Mm-hmm. Still beat her up. It's like, yeah, we found her. She was kind of beat up. Somebody worked over real good. And Bud kind of looked away all shamed and sheepish and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> Ran into a door. I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yo. It was just. I was like, damn. It was just awful. But I thought it was really interesting that the two main characters, and I heard that Curtis Hansen really had to fight for these. The two main characters in the movie were Australian actors. <laughs> I thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> you know, you have, uh, um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the names now. Was it Guy, Guy Pierce and Guy Russell Crowe? Guy Pierce and uh, Russell Crowe as the leads. And I'm sure the studio was like, what? What? <laughs> but, but they were both great. You know, they were both great. And Kevin Spacey, again, future crimes or, or, you know, uh, you know, all that aside, he was great as Jack Vincent. You felt like he was the, you know, the smart ca- cop on the take, you know, whatever. Um, and Kim Basinger was good as this kind of kind of tortured sex worker who looks like, you know, uh, Veronica Lake. Veronica Lake. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a great part of that, which was a great scene <laughs> where uh, I, th- I think it was uh, Guy Pierce's character, uh, actually comes in and is like, you like a two-bit Veronica Lake. And, and look at her over there. Uh, no, that actually is Veronica no, Lake. No, 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 no. It was somebody <laughs> was it? else. It was uh, Jane. Was it Jane Mansfield? It was somebody else. Okay. And he, he was like, yeah, no, that is so-and-so and so-and-so. Yeah. <laughs> she threw the drink in his face. <laughs> He's like, oh, my well. Well, my bad. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> but the uh, the great scene in it that I always remembered, the very first time I watched the movie was when Exley was talking to uh, to Jackie Boy, and he was telling him about you know the, the, the thug that killed his father. And he... Uh, he said, uh, Rolo Tomasi. He's like, I don't even know if that was the guy's real name. I just gave him a name, so basically I have somebody to focus my hate on. No one even knew who he was. I just made the name up to give him some personality. What's your point? Rolo Tomasi's the reason I became a cop. I wanted to catch the guys who thought they could get away with it. It was supposed to be about justice. Then somewhere along the way, I lost sight of that. Why'd you become a cop? <laughs> I don't remember. You know, but that wasn't his name. He tells Jack that story. Jack leaves his presence, ends up meeting with the uh, with the uh, the chief. The chief kills Jack. Right. Jack says, "Rolo Tomasi." Rolo Tomasi. And then when they find Jack's body and the chief has this dog and pony show of a press conference and says, we've got to, you know, bring, you know, the killers of our, our, our comrade to justice, you know, Jack, we've got to bring him to justice. And then he says, actually, yeah. Uh, who is this Rolo Tomasi? Hey, actually like a stuck pig. Yes. What the fuck? <laughs> right. <laughs> so he knows that the chief was the last person to see Jack and that he's involved. Oh, that was great! And oh, then man. when he and Bud White end up at the uh, at the at the Chiefs at the Victory Motel, yo, oh my God, that shootout, yo! 
that was so well staged. Are you kidding God, me? Yeah, you didn't. You never lost your position on where what where people were, what was happening, who was doing what. You never lost your way, not one time. Man, and, and it was it was so it was so crazy because it was like these two unlikely characters, and they did end up having a tete a tete before they decided to join forces. Right, which was great. And it was almost like that scene was meant for them to kind of compare notes in a way. It was like. You know about this? Well, how do you know about this? Right. Maybe we should join forces. Right. And they do. Yeah. So it's almost like the movie comes into focus like, bam! Right. And it just goes to the third act. Like, oh, shit. Right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, and I liked, uh, what's the actor's name who played the chief? Uh, James Cromwell. James Cromwell. I like James Cromwell doing that kind of a, a pseudo-Irish, eh, what do you say, uh, Jackie uh, Boyo? He kept calling people Boyo, you know. Boyo, yeah. yeah. He said, All right, make sure to hold up your badge so that they know you're a policeman. And he, <laughs> shot him in the back. <laughs> yeah, man. But you, but it, it was so good, like, even the um, the lead-in to the last shootout at the Victory Motel, just like Bud and Ed are trying to get ready, and you see, like, headlights. <laughs> Like they just parked outside, man. Right. You, they see you see him coming over the hill. Then you see him in the woods, and it's like, I think it's oh. too late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know what's so funny about that that whole movie, man? I, and this is a crazy thought. It felt like something that Howard Chaykin would have wrote. Like if he did a comics version of it. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Totally felt like. This would be a Howard Chaykin movie, a uh, Howard Chaykin comic book, if it was done in graphic novel form. You, you, yeah. you know what? I never thought about that, but now that that feels perfect to me. Down to the look of the actors, the smart haircuts, the Ed actually with the glasses. Chaykin always got to have a dude with the glasses. Yep. Dark haired, <laughs> dark haired kind of a, a protagonist uh, with the glasses and the slick back hair, set in another time period. Uh, you know, the whole kind of sex worker component to it. Yep. You know, and uh, and porno and fleur de, fleur de lis, you know, whatever you desire, you know. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, the old st- old style flash cameras and the, and the tabloid yeah. aspect of it. All of it felt like shaking. You know, something that, you know, elements of those are in like Times Square and... Uh, uh, American flag and in other things that he's done, you know, where it's like, oh yeah, yeah. But you're you're absolutely right about that, man, for sure. I didn't even think about that, but you're 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 absolutely correct. Um, if you had one recommendation, man, I will I'll let you have the last word. One recommendation on an LA crime movie for someone who is a newbie, someone who is, who who is who is a, as a virgin and needs to get their LA crime movie cherry popped. What you what you gonna say, yo? Damn, man. Come on. Come on. One? One, yo, man? One. Oh, God, dog. God. Hmm. I would say, I would probably say Heat because it would be the most accessible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think to most modern audiences, if you gave them Heat, that, that, that would work for them, you know? And then they could work backwards to Chinatown and uh, LA Confidential, more kind of sophisticated ones. But that could be, that's probably the great entry point right there. Because it combines everything about L.A. that modern audiences could understand. Correct. You know, just yeah. the, the the beautiful climate, but also the seedy underbelly that they've seen on TV and uh, uh, other movies and everything. You know, it's right there. 
it's all right there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And the fact that it was uh, that it was shot in the '90s, you know, the hairstyles, the language, the clothes, even the cars. There's not that much difference from now. Right. So it wouldn't mm-hmm. be so jarring as to someone who may not really get like the '50s vibe of LA Confidential, or certainly the '40s. You know, the look and feel of the '40s and those older black and white films. So yeah, I think I would agree with you, man. Uh, uh, heat, heat would be the one. That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Sidebar Forever is copyright 2020. Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson.